The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. The young man cleanses his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our God abides forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer for the use of 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will begin or open us in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to study your word. We are reminded from scripture that your word is that which informs us how things are so that we can conform our thinking to the reality of your thinking. Father, we are impressed as we read through Daniel with how precisely you prophesy the future, how well, how detailed your control of the future is. And despite whatever chaotic events may occur in human history, no matter how out of control events may seem at times. We know that you are uh, working all things together for the outworking of your uh, purposes in history. Fathers, we continue our study of these things in Daniel 9. We pray that you would help us to understand them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, Daniel chapter 9, starting towards the end here where we are today, open your Bibles to Daniel 9, verse 20. The answer to Daniel's prayer contains perhaps the most incredible prophecy, in my opinion, in all of Scripture because of its detail. And we have gone over it. I've covered it superficially a couple of times, I think. When Tommy was here a couple of years ago for a prophecy conference, he went through it in some, some detail. But I want to go through it in a little more detail this time in terms of all of its implications because this prophecy in Daniel 9 specifically starting in verse 24 down through the end of the chapter, is, uh, has application in a number of different areas. A primary application, of course, is an outline of God's plan for Israel. Outlines God's plan for Israel, that there would be a future for Israel. And the implications of many things in this prophecy are that there is still a future for the nation Israel. So that has to be one uh, part of our study is to look at God's plan for the future of Israel. This is something that a lot of people don't understand. And, of course, in most Calvinistic and all-replacement theological systems, uh, you have many theologians, many churches, many pastors who don't believe there's a future for Israel at all, that because of Israel's rejection of Jesus as Messiah at the first advent, there is no future for Israel. Israel is no different today, in their view, than any other country, any other nation, any other ethnic group. And yet, uh, we do not believe that. We believe that the Bible te- clearly teaches that Israel is distinct among all the nations and always will be, that God made certain prophecies and promises to the nation from Abraham down through uh, Isaac and Jacob, again to uh, Moses and Deuteronomy, again to David, again to Jeremiah, that there will be a distinct future for Israel in the land. And since Israel is out of the land, uh, for the most part today, or has been out of the land since 70 A.D., and there has been a regathering of Israel, or an apparent regathering of Israel since uh, its founding as a modern nation in 1948, we need to address the question, 
uh, is this somehow an outworking of God's plan and purposes in history? Is this some level of prophetic fulfillment? Even though Israel is not being regathered right now as a regenerate nation, and obviously there are many passages in Scripture that teach that God is going to bring the the elect from the four corners of the earth, Matthew chapter 24. Many passages in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel that prophesy that God will restore the nation to the land. And all of those, many of those passages, the focus is on Israel as a saved people, as people who've already accepted Christ as Savior, as Messiah. So since since uh, this is not a regathering of the nation in belief, but the nation Israel is still in unbelief. In fact, a vast majority of the people in Israel are what they call secular Jews. And that means they don't have any uh, religious acts to grind whatsoever. They're not orthodox. They're not reformed. They're they're uh, agnostic and atheistic in many cases. So we need to address the question: Is there pro- prophecy in Scripture? Is there reason to believe that God is going to restore the nation or begin to restore the nation as an unregenerate people? And uh, as part of that study. I want to spend some time going through the history of the modern state of Israel, what has happened since the birth of Zionism and the, as almost as it were, the pre-birth, uh, what was going on with Jews in the land prior to the, the official rise of Zionism, which began in the late 1890s with a, a man named Theodore Herzl, who in, was a, uh, a journalist who covered uh, what was called the Dreyfus uh, care, the, the Dreyfus affair in, uh, France in the 1890s. And I remember as a young college student who took a course on World War I and was mightily interested in studying all of the battles and all of the strategy and tactics and armaments of World War I, spending the first six weeks of the semester studying the Dreyfus affair and wondering what in the world is this trial of a Jewish French captain in the 1890s, have to do with World War One, and basically it was to set up the whole uh, mood of Europe in the late 19th century in terms of anti-Semitism, which had a major part in the background of uh, of not only World War One but also World War Two. But when uh, Theodore Herzl was covering that as that trial as a journalist, and and um, uh, Dreyfus was a Jewish officer who was accused of treason. He was found guilty. He was not guilty. He was innocent. But because he was Jewish, he was 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 the real reason he was put on trial. He was uh, sentenced to a life on Devil's Island, which the movie Papillon made uh, popular and knowledgeable to most of you. If you've ever watched Dustin Hoffman and Steve McQueen and Papillon, if you haven't, you ought to get the video and watch it. But uh, Theodore Herzl observed that trial, and even as early as, 18, I think it was 1897, he realized that Jews had to have their own homeland, that anti-Semitism in Europe was getting out of hand, and uh, so he began with the help of several evangelical believers from England who were premillennial and dispensational, that uh, they, they knew that there needed to be a return to the Jews, to the land of Israel, that uh, that began what is known as modern Zionism. And so that's a fascinating story how that has come about and how God has worked through all of that. But uh, we live in an age today when anti-Semitism is on the rise again in Europe. I've been reading uh, many reports in the, in the newspapers, and uh, uh, it, it's incredible the number of attacks and assaults that have taken place in France in just the last month. There have been synagogues that have been attacked. There was a soccer, Jewish soccer team that was uh, out on a playing field, and a bunch of uh, men, mostly Arabs, came out of the woods with pipes and clubs and attacked them. Uh, there have been uh, bombings. There have been riots. There have been beatings. Uh, there have been comments. A French ambassador to the court of St. James, that's in Britain, uh, made a comment I won't repeat from the pulpit here, uh, referring in an extremely... Uh, derogatory way towards uh, uh, that blankety blank little nation Israel, and, uh, and uh, you know, and this was in an official party. There have been a number of statements like that. Problems in uh, in uh, Germany as well, even though uh, the the official line from both French governments and German governments is not anti-Semitic. Both of these nations, in fact, much of Europe has 
been affected by a tremendous immigration of Arabs and Muslims in the last uh, 30 years. And so that their population of Muslims in France is, is incredible. And so even though there uh, uh, may be some official non-anti-Semitic or anti-anti-Semitic statements from some governments, the fact is that with this large Arab population and the Arabs are the they make the Nazis look like a bunch of amateurs when it comes to anti-Semitism. And uh, with that influence, plus the uh, ongoing, somebody's observed that in the last few months we've seen that Europe suffers from the same two problems they suffered from in the 20th century, appeasement and anti-Semitism. And that is going to continue. So we need to address that to some degree. So we're going to take some time going through these next five or six verses, probably two or three weeks, just to really understand its implications, implications for the rise of the Antichrist, implications for a timing of some events that take place during the tribulation. There are a lot of interesting things going on uh, right now. And, of course, this focuses, as we'll see, starting in verse 20, on the Temple Mount itself. So let's begin. We, we recognize the background we've studied for the last several weeks is Daniel's prayer in the first 19 verses that Daniel has recognized from passages that he, had stu- he has studied in Jeremiah and Deuteronomy and Second Chronicles that Israel is to be returned to the land. They were taken out in discipline beginning in 605, ending in 586. It's interesting they will begin to return to the land 70 years later in 585, uh, 535, and then they will finally build the temple in 516. So the begin to return is 70 years after the beginning of the, the first deportation, and the rebuilding of the temple is exactly 70 years after the uh, destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. So uh, Daniel is reading the scriptures, and it's from the um, chronological note in verse 1. It's the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. So we know from history that that was 538 B.C. Daniel can count, and he knows it's the 70 years are just about up. So he begins to pray to confess for the nation, to confess their sins to God, and to pray that God will restore them to the land. And in the midst of his praying, we have seen earlier that he was he was fasting um, back in verse 3, and that doesn't just include the period of the prayer, because if you read through Daniel's prayer, it doesn't take long. You can start reading in verse 4 and read down through verse 19, in just two or three minutes. So the prayer itself doesn't take long. But the study that goes into the preparation for the prayer is what took so long, and that was why that's part of the whole process is that study, uh, as I pointed out. And so during that time, Daniel was too busy studying to take the time to prepare a meal, to prepare his meals and to eat and clean up. Remember, in that, the technology of that day, it took a long time to prepare meals. You know, it wasn't long ago in here in the U.S. if you just wanted to have a good chicken dinner, you'd have to go out and wring the head off the chicken, and then you'd have to uh, pluck it and clean it, and all of that takes a lot of time. So that's why fasting was is an issue. Never once is fasting commanded anywhere in the Scriptures. You can look from Genesis to Revelation. It's never mandated. But people did it. The reason is to show that they were setting aside the details of life for a for a set period of time so that they could focus all of their attention and energy on studying the Word and praying. And that is why Daniel is weary when he comes to the time of praying that we see in verses 20 and 21. And in verse 20 we read, Now while I was speaking and speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel so the temporal uh, clause here indicates that that Daniel is in the midst of his prayer when he is interrupted Now one point I want to make here is that this is unusual it's not only unusual in terms of scriptural prayers it is unusual in history for any of God's people to be praying and have a direct audible, visual, audible response from God, whether it is a theophany, Christophany, which is an appearance of God or appearance of Christ, uh, Christ after the resurrection, or whether it is a 
uh, an angelic appearance. This is not normal. It was never normal, even in the periods of history in the Old Testament when when miracles were more common. It, this was not normal. Very few people in all of uh, the history of the Scripture ever had these kinds of direct encounters with God. And the charismatic movement has so distorted the teaching of Scripture in this that, that a lot of Christians today think that this was the normative experience of believers in, either in the Old Testament or even during the time of Acts. Uh, and it was not the normative experience. It was unusual and it was rare uh, when it was happening. But now that we have a, uh, the canon of Scripture is complete and closed, God does not speak directly to his people anymore any more than he did during the period between Malachi, which was approximately 440 B.C., and the time of Christ. God is silent. He is not speaking, but he has spoken in his word, and that's part of the test for the church-age believer is whether or not we are willing to simply trust his word and what he has said in the past. Well, what happens to Daniel is he's in the midst of his prayer. He's intensely praying and bringing this petition before God for the people, and suddenly he is interrupted. Verse 20 says, While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication. You see, the, all those I-N-G words represent participles in the Hebrew, and so it gives a sense of movement, a sense of intensity, a sense of dynamic that's taking place. He's speaking, praying, confessing, uh, presenting his supplication before the Lord. In behalf of the holy mountain of my God. Notice that phrase. That is crucial. He is praying for the holy mountain of my God. Now, what is the holy mountain of my God? That is the mountain that is sometimes referred to as Mount Zion. Uh, it is the temple mount. The temple mount is the location of in, in Jerusalem where Solomon's temple was built. When Solomon's temple was destroyed in 586 B.C., it was the site where Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple in 516 B.C. And we know exactly where that is. It's still located in Jerusalem, and it is the site. Uh, it is now controlled by the, uh, by the Arabs, and it is the site of the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And this is why this is so important and why it becomes a focal point in even this war on terrorism is according to the fatwa that was issued by several terrorists, including uh, Osama bin Laden back in 98, the reason they were calling for a jihad against America, which they view as Zionist, against America and the supporters of Israel is to free the Temple Mount. The reason you have this latest intifada, and the term intifada means uprising, this intifada that uh, has been going on since September of 2000 uh, when uh, Ariel Sharon, uh, accompanied by Temple Police, accompanied by uh, members of the Waqf, which is the uh, uh, Arab cont- uh, controlling authority in Jerusalem. Uh, it was an official visit, and yet the Palestinians used it, Arafat used it as a rationale to, to fire the people up and get them all excited. And, and uh, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem called the uh, Palestinians to riot in the streets because uh, Ariel Sharon and the Jews were uh, desecrating the temple, the uh, the the mosques on the uh, on the Temple Mount, and that wasn't true at all. In fact, Channel Two of uh, Israel News uh, videotaped the entire procedure. And since 1967, in the uh, Six Day War, uh, Israel gained control of the Temple Mount, and then Moshe Dayan relinquished it to the Arabs because he was a secular Jew. He wasn't concerned about uh, rebuilding the temple on the Temple Mount. So he relinquished control, but the Jews have maintained oversight of the Temple Mount ever since the uh, uh, 67 war. And that means that it is Jewish policemen who surround the Temple Mount to keep Jews off the Temple Mount. And this has been upheld in the Jewish courts, in the courts of Israel. They continue to uh, uphold the legitimacy of this decision. So uh, it's not like they're anti-Arab, not in the sense that the Arabs are anti-Israel. They're, they have recognized the fact that the Arabs have legal 
uh, access and right to the Temple Mount right now. And there are five different mosques, including the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, on the Temple Mount. Now, Daniel is focusing on the Temple Mount. Incidentally, one of the reasons the Temple Mount is so uh, so significant in Israel's history is because, according to Isaiah, I mean uh, Jeremiah, Genesis 22, this is Mount Moriah, the location of where the location where Abraham was to sacrifice Isaac. And when he was about to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah, God provided a substitute because uh, told him to stop and that there was a ram in the bush, and that ram uh, became a substitute for Isaac, which is a picture of Jesus Christ, who is our substitute on the cross. So the Temple Mount is Mount Moriah. That's why it is such a hot spot, and it is the place where eventually, according to this prophecy, there will be another temple built. This will be the Tribulation Temple. It is an apostate temple. It is not to be confused with the temple that is built during the millennium, that is a completely different temple. And if we have time, we may spend some time in Isaiah, I mean Ezekiel chapter 40 uh, through 47, looking at the uh, issues related to the millennial temple. But the millennial temple is a vastly different temple. It is a divinely authorized temple that is established by Jesus Christ at the second coming. This temple that is referred to in this prophecy, the temple that is desecrated by the Antichrist during the tribulation, is an apostate temple. It is a temple that the uh, Jews must construct during the tribulation in order for the Antichrist to desecrate that, for the abomination of desolation to take place halfway through the tribulation. There must be a a temple, a Jewish temple on the Temple Mount. Now, that's not going to happen today because or there, there, some people have suggested that, uh, well, maybe they can divide the top of the Temple Mount and give the Muslims half and give the Jews half, but neither one of them would settle for that compromise because the entire site is holy according to each religious group. And if the other is allowed to have anything up there, then that would defile the entire Temple Mount. So it's an all-or-nothing proposition, and that tells us that something... Something has to happen between now and the beginning of the tribulation to destroy the presence of the Temple Mount, the, the Dome of the Rock, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and to destroy uh, Islam's control of the Temple Mount. They've got to lose it, and it also tells us that because the Antichrist is able to uh, authorize Israel to rebuild the Temple, that something has to happen between now and then to uh, demilitarize Islam. They are no longer seen as, obviously, uh, as a strong military power at the beginning of the tribulation. They are not resisting. You don't see Arafat throwing temper tantrums at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. You don't see the the, uh, uh, Palestinians rioting in the streets. You don't see, uh, you don't have a picture of of, uh, suicide or homicide bombers at the beginning of uh, Daniel's 70th week. So something has to happen, and I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but my guess is that this entire war on terrorism, everything that's going on in the in the Middle East right now, may eventually culminate in the defeat of Islam to a degree that they are no longer in a position of political or military power to threaten Israel when this time occurs, something has to happen to um, to defang Islam, and I wouldn't be a bit surprised if that was part of the purpose of, of September 11th, is that God was reaching down and doing something horrendous to the U.S. to get us off our butts and to get us involved in, in international politics and wake up to the reality of what was going on internationally, because Americans are, are ignorant of what goes on internationally. If you spend some time uh, on the Internet and read the Jerusalem Post, read uh, London Papers, read uh, uh, Cairo Papers, there's a wonderful website. It's called Middle It's Memory, M-E-M-R-I. can't remember what the acronym stands for right now. But I ran across this site about two months ago, and they translate, have translations of uh, 
current articles, speeches by uh, Islamic leaders. And uh, whether it's Cairo newspaper, Riyadh newspaper, Baghdad newspapers, or speeches that are made by by various leaders, and it's very interesting to read what is uh, actually being said by uh, the Arabs about the U.S. Um, frankly, you read it. Uh, make sure you've taken your blood pressure medicine. Um, it is it's it's horrendous. I mean, what what they say in English is one thing, but what they're saying in their own newspapers, uh, there's it's just terrible. The vitriolic attacks against the United States, the verbal assaults and the hatred and the bitterness that exists in Cairo, exists in Saudi Arabia, exists in in Iraq, Iran, and and Syria, is palpable. I mean, they they are just so divorced from reality because in none of those countries is there such a thing as freedom of the press. And so they do not have an alternate viewpoint. All they ever hear is the party line is promoted by the dictator, as promoted by the the, uh, the the king in Saudi Arabia, is promoted by the Islamic uh, clerics, and um, they never hear any kind of alternate view. So every time there's any kind of uprising, any kind of problem in Israel. What you get is a, a tenfold intensification of it and distortion of it in any, all of the Arab newspapers, and they just go out and they just get everybody all riled up and, and uh, just develop more and more anti-Israel fervor. And anything that the U.S. does, for example, about 60 or 70 percent of the financial aid that goes to the Palestinians comes from, the, comes from your taxes, comes from the U.S., and only about 10 percent comes from the Arab nations. So, um, but that's never reported to the Arabs. The Arab on the street does not know that. He thinks that all of this financial support, any help, any aid that goes to the Palestinians comes from the Arab countries, and the U.S. is completely uh, against the Palestinians. So there's such a distortion there. But I think that somehow that has to be removed. And I think Daniel, the implications of Daniel, uh, Daniel's prophecy here are such that that we would expect. Islam to be somewhat uh, removed from a position of power. So Daniel prays at the beginning, and while he is praying, he is surprised by uh, an angel who appears to him. While I was still speaking, verse 21, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Of course, this refers to the fact that Gabriel had revealed information to him in Daniel chapter 8, verse 16. And in Daniel 8, 16, I thought I had it up here, but I don't. Daniel 8, 16, we read, And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So Gabriel is an angel. Now, there are only two angels mentioned in Scripture by name. There's Gabriel and there's Michael. Now, church history and tradition have introduced, and if you come out of a Roman Catholic background, you probably know the names of two or three other angels, but those are not mentioned in Scripture, and so there's no biblical warrant for uh, knowing the name of any others. The name Gabriel comes from the Hebrew noun Gibur, which is a name for a mighty man or warrior, and El, God. So his name means a mighty warrior of God, and he is not a man. He is an angel. But like in almost every other appearance of angels in the Bible, uh, he appears as a human being. So even though angels have bodies of light, they are immaterial creatures. They are not material creatures as we are. They're not, they don't have corporeal bodies because of uh, the way they're portrayed in some passages. It would seem that their bodies perhaps are made of light, but they have the ability to transform their bodies into a corporeal body and to imitate all of the physical functions of a human body. For example, when God, accompanied by two angels, comes to visit uh, Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, uh, they come in, they, they are offered food, uh, they, their feet are washed, they eat, they are said to be weary, so they take a nap and they sleep. They seem to have all of the functions of a human body, so we can expect that there would be other functions available to them, at least at that point, that... Um, uh, aren't explained so clearly, and that would ex- help explain how 
the such an event as the sons of God, which are angels. The term sons of God always refers to angels in the scripture. And uh, the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 looked on the daughters of men and took them for wives, and they had offspring that were giants or Nephilim. And the only thing that we can use to explain that perhaps is the idea that they are able to transform their body even to a place where they could, could uh, uh, procreate. And they were able to do that. Of course, the offspring were half-breeds, and that was an attempt to destroy the uh, racial purity of the human race in order to prevent the coming of Jesus Christ as the seed of the woman announced in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. So Gabriel, even though he is an angel, appears as a human being, and Daniel refers to him as such and says uh, uh, in verse 21, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, this is the angel, and he is always associated in Scripture with giving uh, with giving specific uh, revelation or announcement. For example, in Luke 1, verse 19 and 26, it is Gabriel who announces to Zechariah, as well, the father of John the Baptist, as well as to Mary, the coming of Jesus Christ. So Gabriel has a specific role in terms of announcing God's plans and purposes in human history. Daniel says, The man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, that's in chapter 8, came to me in my extreme weariness. He's tired. He's been studying. He's been fasting. He's exhausted. Uh, Gabriel came to him in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Now, Daniel is using temple time, even though there has not been a temple in existence since 586 B.C. Remember, this is 538 B.C. There's no temple. There's no temple sacrifices. There's no temple offerings. And yet, he is still using uh, temple time. He, it's about uh, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And in verse 22, he says, And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. Now, it's important to look at the verbs here. First of all, uh, Gabriel gives him instruction. He talks to him. Third, he says, I am going to give you insight. Uh, That would be revelation along with understanding. That would be perception and application. Notice these verbs emphasize thinking, that that revelation is not just an ex, this uh, experience with the angel is not an emotional experience. It is a, an experience that has to do with the communication of content, information, and thought. The emphasis in the spiritual life is always on thinking, not on emotion, not on feeling, not on having some kind of experience with God. In fact, you never... See, if there's any emotion in this thing present at all in this situation, it is confusion on the part of Daniel. I mean, there's no sense of, uh, of ecstasy. There's no sense that somehow he's reached a higher spiritual plane, uh, anything like that. If anything, he's just confused over the information because it's not quite what he expected. One principle that we need to note here in verse 22 is that when God communicates prophetic information, he does so in a way that is understandable. God is not clouding, obfuscating the information so that we have to guess at what prophecy means. I mean, that's how a lot of people want to um, want to approach prophecies. We can't really know what it says. I remember the joke in seminary was that uh, there were really four positions regarding a prophecy. There was premillennialism. Post-millennialism, Jesus comes back at the end of the millennium. Amillennialism, there's no literal millennium. And pan-millennialism, it'll all pan out in the end. And that was, that was always the view of the guys who didn't want to take the time to really study all of the information related to prophecy. And uh, they would read one writer who took one position, another writer took another position. They just uh, would come away too confused by it all. And they thought, we're just worried about what's going on now in the Christian life. We don't need to worry about prophecy. It'll take care of himself. And yet, almost uh, 20% of the Bible, almost 20% of the Bible today is unfulfilled prophecy. And so if you take a sort of an agnostic view towards prophecy that, that we can't really know what it means, you're really, you're really throwing out 
not only 20% of Scripture, but you are also uttering a statement that borders on blasphemy because what you're basically, the, the, the thing you're not saying by that statement is that God didn't, God did not communicate it in a way that we can know it. So somehow God failed. See, the underlying statement there is God failed because he didn't make it clear. And yet God made it clear and the reason that people don't understand it is because of various different agendas, because of various problems in terms of uh, how they try to interpret scripture and it doesn't fit some of their preconceived notions. But if you stop and interpret the Bible consistently on a literal interpretation, that doesn't mean that you don't believe in figures of speech, but that you, you consistently interpret the same things the same way, then the Bible does become very clear and prophecy becomes uh, very clear. And that doesn't mean we understand every aspect of it, but that is not due to God's fault. That is the, usually the problem because we're separated three, two or three thousand years from when it was originally revealed. And there are problems in not only cross-cultural communication, but trying to understand idioms in ancient Hebrew that may not be completely clear to us today. But the principle is that God intended to communicate something. Now, I got in a discussion with somebody about two years ago, and um, this person said, well, you know, there's so many different views on this one subject. It wasn't prophecy. It was something else. And I made the point, I said, well, what you're basically saying is that God isn't very clear when he communicated that. I mean, you're saying, well, it could mean anything, so let's let's say just say, well, we're not really sure. So the implication of that is that God is not a clear communicator. And the point is God communicated, he intended to communicate something, and whatever he intended to communicate, he, he communicated it to be understood. And so we have to start at that point that we should be able to understand this. And if there are any limitations, then it's our fault. So anything less than that is a very subtle way of blaspheming God and saying somehow God failed, and it's not really our fault. It's just too too muddy. Verse 23, Gabriel is speaking, and he says, At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. At the beginning of your supplication, so that was how long ago? Remember I said if you start reading the prayer back in verse 4 and read down through verse 19, it might take two to three minutes at the most. So Daniel is saying that, that two or three minutes ago I was in the throne room of God in the third heaven. And as soon as you began your prayer, as soon as you said the first word, the command was issued. It's not stated, but it would be issued by God the Father. It was issued for me to come and give you this information. So I have come to tell you it took me all of two to three minutes to make it across the universe. See, people think of, uh, uh, it's interesting, they just had these pictures from the Hubble. A uh, whole new technology that they uh, just came out with. I saw some pictures on the Internet this morning with all these distant uh, galaxies that they got incredible pictures from. And, of course, they're 200, 300, 400 light years away. Now, a light year is a measure of distance, not a measure of time. And there are, uh, although in our current environment there's only one way of viewing how light travels in the universe, actually there are some minor views in, among uh, physicists that suggest that light does not travel uh, the, the, the same way, so that things that appear to be a certain distance away are in actuality uh, much, much closer, and the universe is not this continuing, expanding, infinite thing. Remember, the Bible clearly teaches that God created the universe, and therefore the universe is finite. It is not infinite, and yet that is the assumption that man has. So uh, outside of the universe, we have probably, in my opinion, some other dimension, uh, not in the same space-time existence that we have, uh, that we're used to. We have the throne room of God, and so Gabriel exits the throne room of God, and he comes to Daniel, and he says, I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, and the Hebrew word indicates that he is valuable and precious in the sight of God. 
Daniel, because of his devotion to God, because of his unwillingness to compromise, is highly valued by God, and so God is, has responded to his prayer. But if you will notice, even though it doesn't say it in so many words in this passage, the answer to Daniel's prayer, the answer to all of his study, his fasting, the answer to everything is no. Because what Daniel is praying to God for in these first 19 verses is that the entire nation be restored to the land. And what he is going to get is an answer that says, no, there's going to be a partial restoration. But because the nation as a whole has not turned back to me, the nation as a whole is negative to doctrine. The nation as a whole still has not learned their lesson uh, from the uh, divine discipline and their scattering from the nation, I'm only going to restore, God is only, was only going to restore a portion of them to the land. One reason that they are restored to the land, and remember, the restoration that occurs in 535 B.C. is not the restoration of a regenerate or saved nation. They are not restored as a saved people that have turned back to God. Now, there were saved leaders. Ezra was saved. Nehemiah was saved. Zerubbabel was saved. There were various prophets that prophesied during the post-exilic period, such as uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. They were saved. There were others at the time of the nation who were saved, but the nation as a whole was not. This post-exilic period is the period that following the ministry of, of, of Ezra are the generations that created those wonderfully uh, spiritual people that the New Testament calls the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Jesus said your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees in order to see the kingdom of God. So so this is not a generation. This is not going to be a, a return of, of spiritually minded, positive volition people. They are not primarily believers. They are being returned to the land, I think, for one reason and one reason only, and that is so that there has to be, there will be a nation in the land to whom the Messiah can come at the first advent. And that is the same reason I see that God is restoring Jews to the land today. Even though they are not regenerate, there is a, a, a group of Jews, there's a minority of worldwide Jews living in the land with a nation in the land because there has to be a nation at the beginning of the tribulation. There has to be a, a rebuilding of the temple. And incidentally, they have now rebuilt all the temple uh, artifacts, all the utensils in the temple. The, the golden candlestick was completed last fall, I believe. And not only that, but in order to dedicate the temple, they have to use, according to uh, Exodus, the ashes of a red heifer. And the Institute for Temple Studies in Jerusalem announced that the red heifer was born about a month ago. And uh, they have a herd of cattle that were originally uh, started in the U.S. that some people down the south uh, developed and then sent over to Israel. Uh, they had a red heifer that was born three or four years ago, and it was disqualified about a year ago because they discovered four white hairs in its tail. So the red heifer has to live to be three and a half years of age, then be evaluated and tested, be completely red, no other color hair on the calf, on the cow, and then uh, will be offered as a burnt offering, and the ashes will be used to dedicate the the next temple, and that's the whole purpose. So there is a herd in place. Not only that, but there is also a a group of uh, uh, Orthodox Jews that are cons- that are concerned, of course, with the rebuilding of the temple and having a qualified priesthood. Part of a qualified priesthood means that the priest cannot be unclean; has to be ceremonially clean. Well, of course, one of the problems with the law is that if you touch a dead body, or touch any, or walk in a graveyard, walk over a grave, that renders you ceremonially unclean. Well, there have been all kinds of, not only wars, but suicide bombings and who knows what over the thousands of years in Israel's history. So the rabbis, remember, they're hyper-legalist. And their hyper-legalism are afraid that, that if they find someone who's qualified to be a priest, he's not really qualified because if he walked on the ground in Israel, he probably came in contact with something that had come in contact with a dead body and so was ceremonially unclean, rendering him ceremonially unclean. So they isolated, I think, four couples who had all the correct genealogy uh, in the Levitical priesthood to have a, uh, a son that could be a 
function as a high priest. So they uh, constructed an edifice that was off the ground. And the conception of they've had four births, uh, four male births, all of whom were qualified to be the high priest uh, genealogically, but they were all conceived, and the mother spent their entire nine-month gestation period in this house above the ground, and they are they were given birth, and I think they're all young. You know, they're eight, nine, ten, eleven years of age at this point. So, of course, they could be qualified to function as a high priest once they are bar mitzvahed officially at the age of thirteen. So, it's interesting we have a red heifer who has been born recently who will be qualified in about three years. We have some young men who perhaps might be qualified in as early as three or four years to be the high priest. And uh, we have all the temple furniture uh, prepared. So certainly does look interesting out there. And nothing like that has ever occurred before in the church age. Now, none of this has to do with the rapture. The rapture could occur today or tomorrow. But obviously, as we see things developing on the world stage that seem to fit more and more what's going to happen once the tribulation begins, it seems like the rapture then was not very far away. Well, the command is given in verse 23, or Gabriel is speaking in the beginning of verse 23, and says, At the beginning of your supplications, a command was issued, I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. So obviously by his uh, exhortation here to give heed to the message and to give understanding of the vision, Gabriel expects Daniel and expects us to be able to understand what this vision is all about. And this vision is referred to as Daniel's 70th week, Daniel's vision of the 70 weeks. That's important to remember that because I refer to it a lot, and this way you know what that refers to if you were unclear before. Let's look at the passage. Daniel 9.24 is the beginning of the revelation. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city, now, what has Daniel been praying for? We go back and we look at the beginning of his of his prayer. Back in verse four, he is praying in reference to the the, the people in the city and the land. Verse five, verse six. Um, the emphasis is on the land. In verse uh, verse five, it's the kings, the princes, the fathers. Again, that same phrase is repeated in verse eight. Shame to us, our kings, our princes, our fathers. To the Lord our God belong mercy and and forgiveness. And then he goes on, and the focus of his prayer is on the restoration of the people to Israel. And that is the same thing he mentions in verse 20, that he is praying for the holy mountain, and the holy mountain is in Jerusalem. So 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city, that is Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, there are six purpose statements listed in verse 24. So these 70 weeks are decreed so that six things will be accomplished during that time period. Now, as we go into this, there are about six different uh, crucial interpretive problems in this passage. One is to identify the the time frame because it isn't 70 weeks in the Hebrew. It is uh, Sheva'i Sheva'im, which is literally 70 sevens or 70 periods of seven. It doesn't identify weeks, days, months, or years. And it is only as a result of study of the context that we can come to a conclusion as to what that actually means. So it starts off 70 weeks, and that's an interpretive problem. Secondly, what uh, what do these purpose clauses refer to, and have they have any of them been fulfilled? Some people think the first three are fulfilled at the first coming, and the second three are fulfilled at the second coming. We have to look at that. Then in verse 25, Gabriel says, So you, that is you, Daniel, are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks, 
and 62 weeks. And what we will see here is that there are three breakdowns. This 70-week period is broken down into three sections. There's a seven-week section, a 62-week section, and a one-week section. So we, and that's, that's one problem is what do those refer to? Another problem is when is this decree? Which decree is this that is issued? Verse 26, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And then verse 27, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So when we get into this, we need to, first of all, try to solve the first problem of interpretation, which is what are the 70 weeks. This is the time clock. And so there is a very important time clock that's given here. And the way this time clock works is it's like a cosmic stopwatch that begins at X point when there is a decree. And that stopwatch is going to run and there's going to, and, but when it stops, 490 years will go by, and this is for Israel. Now we live in an age when Israel is not relevant. It's not related to the church, it's related to Israel. And as we will see, there is a break that takes place at the time of Christ coming, when the Messiah comes, and it's in that gap that you have the church age, and that gap has lasted almost 2,000 years now, and it is the last week, the 70th week, that is the the seven-year period related to the tribulation. So let's look at the first question, and that is what exactly, how are we to understand this this phrase, 77s? Are they days, months, uh, days, weeks, months, or years? The answer is not obvious until you start looking at a few things in Scripture. First of all, when you take a concordance and you look up the word for 77s, and you look that word up, it is used of days, it's also used of years, it's used of various units of time. It's used of days in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 5, and it's used of years in Genesis 29:27. So we have a precedent... Uh, and various in, in Genesis 29 for this to be a week of years, and uh, when we look at the context in Daniel, we'll see that 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 Daniel is focusing on a yearly problem. We go back to Daniel chapter 9 verse 2, and we realize that as he's studying Jeremiah the prophet, he learned that God would accomplish 70 years in the desolation. Of Jerusalem, so the context is talking about years. Furthermore, in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 through 12, or 10 through 14, we see the background to this. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with your whole heart. Now, why didn't Gabriel just say, well, Daniel, there's going to be 490 years? That would have been a lot less ambiguous, but it skips part of the problem, which is understanding why you have these 70 years. And the reason goes back to the violation of the Mosaic Law, and that was that once every seven years, you were to have a sabbatical year. So you'd have six, six years of working and then one year of no work. Six years of work and then one year of no work. And what happened is that Israel failed over a period of time. There were times when they 
follow the sabbatical year system, but there were many sabbatical years where they did not. Now, just as an interesting application, this shows that the Bible is pro-environment. See, a sabbatical year, you let the land rest. You let the land grow, the fields grow fallow. This is an agricultural environment. And so God is showing that in the Mosaic Law there should be respect for the creation. Notice I didn't say nature. But for the creation. And that man should work well with the, with the creation and use it responsibly and not just abuse it, use it irresponsibly. But that's the Christian view of the use of the environment. There's a radical difference between the Christian view of using the environment for man's purposes and the pagan environmentalist view that dominates everything today, which is, comes out of polytheism and pantheism and the idea that the earth is somehow divine and we can't ever abuse it or use it. If most of these environmentalists had their way, we would do away with automobiles and any kind of modern technology because we we aren't supposed to really change the environment. The Bible says we are to change the environment. We are to use it and improve upon it and use it to improve man's lot in life. But Israel disobeyed God and they um, and Second Chronicles 36:21 explains why the Babylonian captivity was 70 years long, and that is because there were 70 of these sabbatical years that were violated. So, if you have one sabbatical year every seventh year, then 70 times seven equals 490 years. So for a 490-year period, Israel had violated those sabbatical laws. So that means that when Daniel comes along in 538 B.C., God is saying that in the past there were 490 years of Israel's history where they were disobedient. To make up for that, they had to spend 70 years out of the land during the Babylonian captivity. Now he's going to get a vision of 70 periods of seven, and if you multiply that out, you get 70 times seven, you come up with 490 years again. So just as there were 490 years in the past, there will be 490 years for Israel in the future. Notice how there's in God's plan, he's got it outlined in terms of a perfect in terms of a perfect balance. So just as there were 490 years in the past, there will be 490 years in the future. So the purpose here is that there will be a future for Israel for this full 490 years. Notice, the 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. That's Israel. God said there's going to be 490 years for your people in your holy city, and then he outlines the purposes. There are six purposes listed, so let's see what they mean. First of all, to finish the transgression. Now, a couple of things we ought to note here, and that is that the noun transgression has a definite article with it in the Hebrew. It is the transgression indicating specificity. The word the in English is our definite article and indicates one specific transgression, not just any transgression. And for the Jews, this is the specific rebellion against the rule of God. They have rejected the rule of God. They were they rejected God and they worshipped idols in the past. And so this decree is to finish the transgression. And that will not happen. They will not accept the rule of God as a nation until the second coming. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 13. So to finish the transgression cannot refer to the work of Christ on the cross. It must refer to the coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation, at the end of this age, before the millennial kingdom. And it will not be until then that Israel gives up this sin of rejecting the rule of God. The second phrase is to make an end of sin. Actually, it is a plural in the Hebrew, and it refers to the sins of daily life. And so these 490 years must run their course 
until the sins of the daily life of Israel are completed. And once again, those daily sins are based upon the root sin of rejecting the rule of God in their life. So these sins are rooted in their rejection of Jesus as Messiah, and that won't end until the end of the tribulation, until they accept Jesus as Messiah. Third, to make atonement for iniquity. And though that looks like, well, that was accomplished on, on Golgotha, in fact, Jesus did pay the penalty for every single sin in human history. It is not accepted by the Jews and applied to Israel until the end of the tribulation, until the second coming of Christ. So it is clear that these first three are not fulfilled until the end of the 490 years, till the end of the tribulation. It has not happened yet. Uh, the fourth one is that they, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and that is a term that is related to the righteousness of the millennial kingdom when Jesus, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, returns to the earth and establishes his righteous kingdom. The fifth term is to, or purpose is to seal up vision and prophecy, and that means to bring to fulfillment all Old Testament prophecy related to the nation Israel. Once again, that does not occur until the end of the 490-year period and doesn't occur until Jesus Christ returns a second time. And then finally, to anoint the most holy place, and that is a reference to anointing the most holy place in the millennial temple that is constructed at the beginning of the millennium. So there are six purposes outlined in Daniel 9.24, and these six purposes are not accomplished until the end of the 490-year period. They're not accomplished at the 483rd year when a Messiah is cut off. They're not accomplished until the end of the full 490 years. Well, that handles the first couple of problems, and that is the meaning of the 70 weeks and the reference of the six uh, purpose clauses in Daniel chapter 24. Uh, next time we'll come back and we'll look at the at the uh, actual decree itself, which decree is that, and how does that play itself out in terms of the history of Israel, and we'll cover that next time. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to see how precisely you have laid out history. In fact, we will see that you have laid out your plan in such a way that, that uh, in this prophecy you uh, fulfilled it to the very day. You prophesied exactly how many days would take place between the initial decree and the uh, rejection of Messiah, and that was fulfilled to the very day. And so, therefore, we can know that, that history is not just a collection of random events, but that there is a precision to it, and you are in control. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and we would be uh, encouraged and comforted knowing that you control history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.